All right. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. We uh, finished last week in verses 12 and 13, which say, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And yet, for fear of the Jews, no one was speaking openly of him. John 7 is about six months before Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas, handed over to the Jews, uh, given a trial by night, a sentence of death, handed over to Pilate, and uh, executed on the cross by the Romans there. And, and, and that, that all happens in six months from chapter 7 at the Feast of Passover. And as I said, in John 7, it's six months before that, and Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and the Feast of Booths is happening. So three times a year, the Jews were all to gather together um, and to celebrate and remember what God had done. And this Feast of Booths was one of those celebrations. It was really the highlight of the Jewish feast. They would just have, you know, they'd have a lot of food, they'd hang out, and they'd have, they'd it's like camping out and outside. They just had a lot of fun. They were just remembering how God's faithfulness sustained them in the wilderness as a people way before. And so Jesus' uh, fame has spread everywhere. He's doing miracles all over the place, and all those people he's ministering to are now gathered back into the capital there, into Jerusalem. And so Jesus is trending, and he is the word on the street. Everything is 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 about Jesus, and, and what John gives us here in chapter seven so far is basically a snapshot of the various groups that were there in Jerusalem, the groups of people, and how they were reacting to Jesus, because this is all culminating into their massive rejection of him, and so John's just kind of taking us and giving us that it's not just um, chapter six, uh, where his disciples followed him no more. It's not just that, uh, you know, just that Judas would betray him, but it's just, it's systematic, it's all the way wide and that the world rejects the light of the world. And so Jesus' frame has spread and, and John just kind of gives us this important um, conclusion that, uh, well, basically, if I could go back, it's important to know that what you conclude about Jesus Christ is the most important, important conclusion that you will ever come to. Any person you run into any person you're proclaiming the gospel to, any person you're um, you know, uh, going to a doctor's visit with or for and all that type of stuff, the most important interaction you will ever have in your life is concerning the person of Jesus Christ. What you conclude about the person of Jesus Christ determines all eternity. It is so important, and either you have his life or you don't. And what I think is crystal clear here is that in a very religious society who had the Bible, who knew things, the thing that permeated the whole situation was unbelief, radical unbelief and rejection of the Messiah that they claimed to know and love. So what's the application? Is it I? Right? Is it I? Lord, am I the one who loves the miracles but I've rejected the Son? Am I the one who is faithfully going to church yet have, and, and, and have kept the law religiously, so to speak, but yet inwardly there's a hypocrisy going on? And, you know, just the word just has this beautiful way of exposing us. And so I'm praying that the spirit would just allow us to see as we're going through these things that kind of don't really, it's like, okay, great, all these different people have an opinion about Jesus. Well, so do we. And may the Lord show us our own hearts as we go through. And that's kind of, what's in my mind as, as we go through this. But this is important because that conclusion of what people have about the Son of Man, about Jesus Christ, is the most important conclusion. So John 7 is full of those opinions. If you look back in, in the beginning, we know from verse one that the Jews, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they're, they're, they what? They rejected Christ, they want to kill him. Same for today. There's people who are flat out radically against Jesus Christ, by the way, and they're religious. And they can even be part of the, the church, you know what I'm saying? So there are those positions of power that are vehemently anti-Christ, religious positions. And, and we know from verses three through five, I'm not gonna belabor these things, but three through five, at the same time we know Jesus' own half-brothers rejected him. They did not believe at this point. We find in Acts 1.14 that eventually they do, but Right now they don't, 
They saw the miracles. They were walking along with him. They saw the power. They grew up with Jesus. And yet, it says that they did not believe there in verse five. And that group would also include, I would think, the disciples who, in John, the prior chapter, John 6, verse 66, it says that they no longer walked with Jesus. Those who knew, experienced his ministry, knew his teaching, knew the power. And yet, when it came down to it, they would not abide. They would not eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. They would not have their life in him. And so, those close to Jesus didn't believe him. And now in verses 12 and 13, as Jesus has decided to go secretly into the feast and not openly, because it wasn't his time yet to be killed, we see that the crowds of people who are converging from all over the place have varying opinions about Jesus. And some thought that he was a good man. Right? How many of you have asked, asked people what they think about Jesus? That's a great conversation. You know, it's like asking what you think about the president or, you know, what do you think about the Raiders or the Seahawks, you know, whatever it is. It's like there's opinions that, ha- that form very quickly and people will let you know. And one of the opinions that you've probably heard about Jesus is that he's a good man. How many of you have heard that he's a good man? Yes, and he's a good teacher. And that seems to be the, uh, the hippie approach to things. Uh, you know, just kind of everybody getting along, everybody kind of, you know, he's good, I don't want to rock the boat, don't want to say he's bad because that would be really close-minded of me, but I'm definitely not going to embrace who he is. He's a good guy. He's great teaching and all that stuff, you know. Or like Gandhi, you know, I love Christ, but I don't like his followers, you know. Sorry, Gandhi, it's one big giant package. The body of Christ, we're all his. You know, yeah, I understand there. There's, there's depth there. But, you know, there's, there's people who say he's a, he's a good teacher. And then there's those who are in that crowd in verse 12 who say not only is that, you know, he can be a good guy, but yet there's this other group that says, man, he's leading the people astray. He's leading the people astray. What he teaches is flat out destructive to our society. It's going against the law of Moses. It's going against the status quo of, of the way things should be. They're, they're, he's bucking the power structure, perhaps, or his teachings are offensive, or you know, just, just look at what's going on. He's causing unrest. He's bringing a sword to our society. And many of you, when you're faced with Jesus Christ and, and what he teaches, there's this offensiveness, there's this divisiveness that, that Jesus brings. His teachings don't just fit into our, our little world and make us all happy. He brings division to our families. He brings division to us and our employers. He brings division to, within our own soul. He's just that way. He's the kingdom of light, and those who aren't in the kingdom of light, he wants to have come into the kingdom of light, but there is no compromise with him. And so people can see him that way as being divisive and leading people astray. And so there's these various opinions that are happening. But one of the overarching themes within, no matter what you think of Jesus, is verse 13, that no one was talking openly about it for fear of the Jews. Now, just if, let's just, let's, I, I'm not getting into this, but let's just say you have a p- political sway, persuasions one way or the other. How many of you mutter those things and don't necessarily talk about them openly for fear of fill in the blank? You know, I'm just saying. So, so you kind of get the gist, all right? I'm not making a political statement. But there's this, man, if you open your mouth, you're gonna pay for it. And these people that are in power there are able to cast you out of society, the fear of the Jews, they were the religious leaders. In, in, in church, you have to understand that the, the temple, that was the center of their society. Church, synagogue was, this, was the center of what it means to be the Jew. You were under the law, you were in a tribe, you were with people, you were gathered together, and to be cast out of those synagogues when Jesus is saying, man, be careful, you know, like, I'm telling you in the day, disciples, guess what? Your own children are gonna betray you. Your own children are gonna betray you and they're gonna cast you out of the synagogues. That's what they're talking about. You're gonna be cast out of this structure that was actually designed to be centered on the worship of God but which had become a false religious system because it rejected the very Messiah it was there to proclaim. So these men had tremendous power and they were, and there was a great fear about speaking openly for fear of the Jews. It's interesting how that same 
spirit is alive and well here 2,000 years later, right? So that's the setting. Everybody's got an opinion. Not many people are saying it openly, but it's the most important thing to come to the correct conclusion about. Verse 14, let's pick up. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Again, the temple was this massive complex with all these you know, colonnades and places, porches and different places where you could go and the rabbis would sit and teach and people would gather. There's the treasury and there's all these places all over the place. So it's just this massive place and Jesus was mixing in this crowd of a million people converted on this place and he's starting to teach. And it says there, the Jews, verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied, remember that they marveled at the disciples. They start, I love that verse. I can't remember where it is right now, but they marveled at the disciples because of the wisdom they had. And it says there, it's because they had been with Jesus. I love that. I love that. I don't think this should be taken as a compliment to Jesus. They're not complimenting Jesus. They're not saying, oh man, look at this guy. He's so awesome. Uh, he's uneducated. I think what's happening is they are marveling at one, in one moment, and in the same moment, they're going, hey, this guy is not of us. This guy didn't, he's not educated in our school of rabbis here in Jerusalem. Again, the people there, they, they knew the, the official teachers. They knew the official teachers, right? They knew the Pauls of the day who were set apart and who met all these criterium and who went through their schools and, and, and who were trained by Gamaliel's and all these amazing rabbi teachers of the day and they, had, they were trained in their thinking and their actions and all this type of stuff. They, they knew who those guys were. And so here's this outside rabbi coming in, not connected to the main power structure and these guys are saying, man, this guy has never studied. He has great learning, but he has, he's not, he never studied. Paul, in Philippians chapter three, kind of gives us a hint of what it took to be one of these religious leaders, to be one of these rabbi teachers. Paul in Philippians three, verses two through six, there's other places as well, but he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about those who force you to have circumcision. He's talking about these guys. He says, look out for them. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the what? In the flesh. He's not saying that education is bad. He's not saying any of these things, but there is a tendency within man to put uh, religiously, this is, this is religious education here. He's saying to put your, your, all your power and all, all your trust in, in your schooling and your pedigree and all these types of things, right? And he's saying, listen, man, there's a different wisdom. And he talks about his own history. Verse four, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He says, you guys think these guys are awesome. They're coming around you telling you to do all this stuff. I outrank them. I w- what they are, I was 15 times more is kind of what he's going at here. And he talks about that later in Corinthians, but he says there, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, check, of the people of Israel, check, of the tribe of Benjamin, check, a Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As to the law, a Pharisee, check, check. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, check. Right? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. The guy was a stud. Right? I mean, when you saw Paul walking down the street, you go, I want to be Paul when I grow up. You got his trading card. You got everything. I mean, he was awesome. His posters on the wall. You know, he's got all his tassels. And <laughs> I know, that's a bad. But he's one of these highly educated guys, guys. And I'm not knocking that. I really am not. I've come to value that. But as so, the, the Jews are just marveling at Jesus' wisdom. The first thing they point out is that he was not educated. He was not of our school. He, was, he didn't go through our systems. He didn't do all the things, right? And he didn't come from us. That's the gist. 
And here's what they're getting at. This teacher's authority is flawed. Because if you want to have authority, you've got to come through us. And that's what they're getting at. And I don't know how many of you, and I, and I listen, we'll get, I'll get into this a little bit, but this is my thinking, but man, you just feel like I haven't had the training, I don't know this or that, and I just have not, you know, all I've got is just the gospel of John and I love Jesus. Welcome to the team. Welcome to the team. You know, he's looking for the willing. He's looking for the guys on the shore who are casting their nets that will just leave all and follow him. He'll fill you with the wisdom you need. He'll educate you. He'll teach you. He'll show you those things. And so I just want you to take heart. And by the way, if you are a Paul, he uses Paul's too. Amen. To the glory of God. He just looks for the brokenhearted and sometimes he needs to break your heart. And so, all the time actually. And so the Jews are just marveling at that wisdom, but they're saying, man, he isn't, he isn't of us. This guy's authority is flawed, and that's the context we need to be mindful of here. People's opinions are swaying about Jesus, and they want to sway those opinions back away from Jesus to unbelief. That's what they want. And that's what the world wants with us. As we marvel at Jesus, as we're excited about Jesus, as he does things in our lives, as his word comes alive and we're just going, man, this is amazing. You always get that person, yeah, but, and then they just fill in the blank. And then they just try to shoot that doubt into your heart about who Jesus is and his authority and his glory. You gotta remember, these guys, they saw his miracles. They sent people to go verify these things. They They knew what he was up to. They knew his power. They knew that he wasn't just an ordinary guy. And yet they denied him anyways. That's dangerous stuff. If you go back to chapter five, it's the same thing as six months earlier when he was there. Uh, They challenged Jesus and and he responds by telling them. They challenged his authority and he comes back and he says, listen, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony's not true. And Jesus goes on for the rest of the chapter telling them of the others who testify of his authority, which they would know, supposedly John the Baptist. Remember, we went over this. John the Baptist testified of Jesus' authority, that he came uh, you know, from, from heaven and came down to earth and is the son of God, and he testifies of these things. Um, the father testified, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, the scriptures, he goes about how all the prophets and, the, and, and, and everything spoke of Jesus and the Messiah, they testified of him. And even Moses, it starts talking about the Mo, Mo, he starts talking about Moses, right? How Moses verifies that his authority is from God. And so while it seems that the Jews here in chapter 7 seem to be marveling at Jesus, really, they are just saying this isn't God's spokesman, no way. How is this man who has, he he has learning, but he's never studied. Verse 16, so Jesus answers them. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Again, they're challenging his authority. Listen, that's important. What Jesus says is important. It is the most, these are the most important words you will ever read. What he says concerning life, what he says concerning death, what he says concerning sin, what he says concerning judgment, what he says concerning the way of eternal life. And if they can discount your, his authority, they can discount everything that he says. And that is the lie from the beginning. We have to know this. That is the lie from the beginning. What are the very first words out of Satan's mouth in Genesis 3? Did God really say? He's always undermining the authority of God. That's a theme throughout all of scripture. And he's a usurper from the beginning. You know, you've got the five I wills. I will ascend. And he talks about how he will overthrow. I will go above. I will be lifted up. That's Satan's MO. That's what he does. That same spirit is alive and well today. They said, how in the world does this man learn? He's never studied. And Jesus says, man, my, it's not for me. This is, these are God's words. And that's the amazing thing, church. And you know it 
when, when the Holy Spirit illuminates your heart, when he's speaking to you, as you are simply hearing his word, either being taught or you're reading it or you're meditating on it or you, a verse just jumps out at your heart, man, there's something that transcends humanity. The word of God, it's alive, it's, a, it's powerful, it's active. You don't need Matt's teaching. It's not life. His words are life. We exist to exalt Jesus Christ, to give you his word. His word, his precious word, to try to just get everything else out of the way, and that's a full-time job. And when you hear it, when it pierces your heart, when you hear the Father speak to you, it, it changes everything. These words are not mine, but it is him who, who has sent me. These are the words of the Father. In other words, this is God speaking, Jesus is saying. The effects that the message of the word of God has upon the heart of a person who is being illuminated by the Holy Spirit is that the word of God is divine. It's from God. There's, there's a recognition of that in your soul. The authority of the word doesn't come from what the, what theological background, uh, what, where you studied and what little degree you've got. Comes from, it's his, it's eternal. It's his preserved divine word throughout the ages. The power is in his words, not in mine. The authority is in what he says, not what I say. And that is why the scriptures are attacked relentlessly by people who don't know what they're talking about. But the authority of the word of God is beautiful. Think about it in sharing the gospel with others. Romans chapter 1, 16. Think about this verse when you share the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it. For it what? For it is the power for salvation. Does that help you out a little bit in your evangelism? It helps me in my preaching. Tell you that. Not so concerned about Matt's ability to articulate. You already know what that is. But somehow, when you just hear those phrases and those words, and man, it strikes your heart. You're changed. It's him. You know, and you get someone walk up and goes, man, that was blessed, man. You, you know, you're really blessed, man. I just go, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, that was, thank you, Lord. You know, it's him. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and then to the Greek. I love that. You can go share the gospel with people realizing that the power is in the word of God, in the message. Now he empowers you to give it, obviously because Christ is in you. So win, 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 right? Jesus is saying that the message is from the Father, it's his authority. His message doesn't come from rabbi school. It comes from the one who sent him. And one of the hardest things about going to rabbi school is that you have to unlearn rabbi school. You know, and I'm not knocking it because I, I learned a lot like at Bible college. Man, blessed me tons. And I think those, the, you know, go for it. Learn, be deep, all those things. But quite often we can learn ourselves right after out of depending upon the Holy Spirit. Just simply open the Bible and reading and letting the Lord teach you. He'll teach you. And he's put a body and elders around you so if you get off, we, 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 we self-correct. Amen? How many of you are perfect in your theology? Because we need to talk. Jesus, you know, I mean, <laughs> Not saying we don't strive for it, right? But I mean, that's what I love about the church is there's a correction that happens, I believe. If someone's off, man, we kind of corral around them, love them, teach them the word, and we get changed, right? But sweet. I want you to open your words, this, the word this week. I want you to read it and let the Holy Spirit teach you and, and lead you and guide you in your practical application of daily things, amen? Jesus goes on. If anyone's will, verse 17, is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking my own authority. Here the Jews are challenging Jesus' credentials, right? 
And Jesus says, what I teach is from God, and if, you're genuinely desi- if you genuinely desire to God's will, if that's what you guys are all about, if you guys are really, really seeking after God, if you really want to know him, guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna come to the conclusion that what I'm teaching is not my own, it is from God. It's him. And by the way, I'd be very cautious of anyone like making this your life verse. You know, <laughs> this is Jesus speaking. Like, the words are his, his father's, right? And uh, he was the one who was sent. And we are now sent on his behalf, but we proclaim his words, not from our own authority, the same way as Jesus did, so to speak. But then he says, you know, you're gonna, if you're after God's will, you're gonna listen, you're gonna hear, and you're gonna know that my teaching, my authority is truly from God. And how many of you have heard the word of God, you were doubtful at first, and then it starts to get in your heart, and then all of a sudden it changes your thinking. You understand the power of God, and then you go, man, this is God's word, and you walk away from going, man, this is supernatural. What's going on here? Anybody else? Yeah, it's astounding. And then you spend your whole life going, what does that mean? And you try to figure that out because it's just not something you learned, you know, from a little class. It's eternal. It's from God's very heart downloaded to his kids. It's sweet. Verse 18. Oh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 18 says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. This is Jesus speaking about motivation. Why am I speaking words that are not my own? Why am I seeking to do these things? And, he, and obviously, what's he doing? He's drawing a contrast between the guys he's talking to, right? They're the ones who are teaching on their own authority. They're taking what God said and making it convenient for them so they can control a bunch of people, whatever it is they're doing. They're seeking their own glory. Jesus is sitting here and points out the difference between his authority and theirs. Most of those Jewish leaders were speaking on their own authority and they were seeking their own glory. They were after personal glory, personal gain, and Jesus calls them on it. And Jesus' authority was the true authority. That's what he's saying. And in him there was no falsehood. Jesus is saying, I don't, I'm not speaking on my own, own authority. I'm speaking on the Father's words. I'm, 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 everything I'm doing is for his glory. That, that's what I'm about. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. And there's no falsehood in me. Where does that leave you? Right? Where does that leave you, Pharisees? Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Why are you after me? You should be after yourselves. Is what he's saying here. These leaders were those who claimed to be the law keepers, the teachers of Israel, and everyone saw them as perfectly keeping the law. They had the posters on the walls, right? I mean, these guys were the studs. They kept up appearances, but inwardly they were guilty, and that's what Jesus warns his disciples of, of Matthew 5.20. How many of you ladies are in the Sermon of the Mount right now? and you're on Matthew 5.20, you've been around there, right? Jesus is saying there in Matthew 5.20, he says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds the guys you've got on the wall, you're never gonna enter in. That's pretty amazing. That's scary. That's what he's telling his disciples. These the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders there, they had this external righteousness, right? They kept the law of Moses to the T, but their primary focus was on those external requirements of the law. And Jesus not only required the external requirements, he required the internal one. And that's what it is for the new covenant, to be born again. So many of us were, how many of you were raised in more of a, a kind of a, a religious background where it was law-keeping, right? Some people who kind of grew up in certain sects of Christianity or cults or, or Catholicism or even, you know, more rigid streams of whatever. Um, 
you know, there's this idea that if you, if you kept all these things perfectly, then you were righteous with God. And that's an incredible weight. That's an incredible weight because we know that unless your righteousness exceeds that, of these guys, the Pharisees, like Paul, who kept everything, you're by no means entering the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is just basically saying, it's impossible. It's impossible. You have to have an internal righteousness. You have to have an internal righteousness. You have to be right on the inside. And that's even worse because we know that, you know, that's, that's where the war is, right? Flip over to Matthew 23 for a second. It's important to go into depth on this and these guys. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds, to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Hey, listen, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you to do. They're an authority, but don't do what they do. Yikes. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move with their fingers. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fingers long. They love to places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. And so they had, you know, they had the word of God in a little box and they put it on their head. Well, I've got a bigger box than you are because I'm really super religious. And, uh, you know, they loved all the seats of the synagogue, verse seven, and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth. Don't call them pope, papa, in a religious sense, correct? This isn't saying you can't call someone father. You know what he's talking about. For you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall... uh, Sorry, neither shall you be called instructor, for you have one instructor in Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the thing. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The kingdom is made up of humble people. And then he turns and he lays into the religious leaders for seven woes. Here we go. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So they're missionaries. We go over where just to change one person's soul. He goes, you make him twice a son of hell as yourself when you've done what you've done. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. He goes, you blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? You see, they were focused on the gold on the outside, not the internal, the temple. See what Jesus is saying here? He's doing these analogies of the outside versus the end all focused on the outside. You blind fools, which is greater the gold in the temple or that, has made, that which has made the gold sacred. Verse 18, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift of the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Verse 21, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells on it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. You do your tithes and your offerings, but you forget about justice and mercy and faithfulness. Everybody sees you putting stuff on the plate, but they don't see justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are the things that God is concerned with as well. He says these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. See, it's not only external, it is internal. 
You blind guides, you strain out a gnat while swallowing a camel. Both unclean things, they would strain out at a gnat, like who wants to drink a bug? But they would strain it out of whatever it was so they would, wouldn't be clean. They'd strain it out. And Jesus says, but you swallow a camel. That's the idea. It's totally unclean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the plate uh, that the outside might be clean. You see, this is the religion of the world. It's cleaning the outside of the cup, doing all the right things when the inside is what drives Jesus says, you need to be clean on the inside. I've come for a kingdom that starts within and works its way out. You must be born again. You must have a new spirit. You need living water. You need new life. It starts from the inside out. It's not behavior modification camp. It's life restoration, total alteration of, of who you are. First clean the inside of the cup, verse 26, and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like, you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, a whole chapter, everybody, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. You're the descendants of those people. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape the coming sentence of hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Now Jesus is saying, not only have you killed the ones that I sent in the past, you're gonna kill the Son of Man. I'm gonna send you more, my disciples. Therefore, I send you the prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and others you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood, righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of uh, Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Verse 37, without skipping a beat, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood until, uh, under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says these leaders back in verse seven of 19, says, has not Moses given you the law yet none of you keeps it? See what he's talking about? Man, an internal Righteousness. And I hope you're all feeling doomed. And you're identifying with these hypocrites and all these things because that is the effect of the holiness of God on a generation. And realize that, man, Jesus, and, and here's the hope. It drives you to the hope, right? So, oh no, poor in spirit. But, oh, who's gonna save me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, the righteous, internal, external. He is life church. Amen. He is our only hope and so thankful for him. Jesus knew their hearts. He said, you guys, it's not Moses giving you the law yet. You don't keep it. Why do you want to kill me? And here he's openly accusing them of desiring to, of not only breaking the law, but murder. And the crowds answered him, verse 20, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? You are out of your mind. That's how people acted when they had demons. They were, out, they were crazy, right? So they're saying, you have a demon. Now remember, this didn't just come, this isn't just like they just came up with this. The Pharisees planted this idea in the public's mind. We're gonna see it developed here in chapter eight. This is all PR campaign. 
They're spreading this, these lies about Jesus to the public that somehow the power and the authority that he has, that he's doing all these things from, is not God because they have to explain it. It's demonic, right? And, and this crowd, you gotta hear, they, they don't understand the full story. A lot of them are coming from other places. They're all hanging around and, and they've been, they're gathered together. They're listening to Jesus teach. They're from, you know, Yakima or wherever they're from, right? And they don't realize the local leadership is out to kill Jesus. They're, they aren't, and they're just going, who wants to kill you? Yeah, you have a demon. They're connecting these things, right? And Jesus says, verse 21, I, I did one work and you marvel at it. So Jesus have a conversation with the leadership and yet all these people are around. This is what's happening. He says, I did one work and you marvel at it. What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about six months before in chapter five when the guy at the pool of Siloam, he heals and he gets up and he walks on the Sabbath and that's when they start to kill him. They sought to kill him because he did those works on the Sabbath. They were just after him. He says, I did one work and you marvel. That's why that marveling isn't necessarily a good thing. And then verse 22 says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but it's from the fathers. It's not even the law. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, right? Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Jesus points out their total hypocrisy. You had to, on the eighth day, you needed to circumcise your kids. Well, what happens if that falls on the Sabbath? Are you not supposed to do it on the Sabbath? Is there exception? No, they do it anyways. Jesus says that some of the circumcision is gonna fall on the Sabbath. And in order to fulfill this tradition handed down by the fathers and to fulfill the law of Moses, you go ahead and do it. You go ahead and do it. He's saying, if you are doing what honors God on the Sabbath, why are you after me for making this one guy totally well and whole on the Sabbath? You see your hypocrisy? And Jesus says in verse 24, don't judge by appearance, but do judge with righteous judgment. And that was their thing. It was always outward. It was never internal. It was always what people saw and perceived, but it was not the kingdom of the heart. And they went for blood. How dangerous it is when we judge by appearances instead of judging by what is right. And this is why I do love the Sermon on the Mount for us. It reveals the righteous judgment of God. You have heard it said, do not murder. Well, that's just the external requirement of the law. It's not do not murder, it's love your enemy. It's the opposite. Isn't that crazy? Sometimes we think we have a righteousness with God and we judge externally. We judge by appearances that we're right with God when in reality, we've got some issues. <laughs> it isn't that we aren't murdering, but we, we have anger towards one another. can't just say, hey, I didn't murder, but do I have anger in my heart? Am I loving my brother, my enemy, etc.? Verse 25, and some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Notice who these people are. Different group. Who is it? Therefore, the locals who knew what was going on with the local leadership said, hey, this has got to be the guy. They didn't have Facebook. Right? They didn't know who he was. He's teaching, and they're like, wow, this guy is something. Is this the guy they're trying to kill? Right? Verse 26. And here he is speaking openly. And they, said, and they say nothing to him. If they're trying to kill him, why, why are they letting him speak openly? Can it be the authorities really know that he's the Christ? Gosh, leadership is difficult. <laughs> These guys can't even get it right being evil. So, uh, yeah, there they are trying to, you know, they aren't doing anything. Why aren't they doing anything? Because the, the, the authorities, they fear the, the church. They fear the, or the, group, the crowd, right? Instead of fearing God, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't be in the situation. But So the lack of action by the leaders leads the locals to think that they might be converted, but we knew better, right? Verse 27, but we know, here's the, here's the locals, they go, but we know where this man comes from 
And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Isn't it interesting how everybody's got their opinion about Jesus? They knew where he comes from. Oh, he comes from Galilee. So obviously, because he comes from Galilee, he's not from heaven. And by the way, um, real quickly, uh, when the Messiah comes, we all know, collectively we know, this is common knowledge, that when the Messiah appears, he's just going to appear out of nowhere. They got it all wrong. They got the leadership wrong. They've got where Jesus came from wrong. They didn't know he was born in Bethlehem. They had that information all wrong. And they also, guess what? They don't know about the return of the Messiah, how he would come. They are totally ignorant, and yet their whole futures are based upon these things. And so real quickly, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, apparently, that's facetious, and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Again, Jesus is just telling them, listen, you don't know my father. And that's what he keeps belaboring. And in verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And so verse 30, and so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And that's, the Pharisees are seeking to arrest Jesus. So there's just this public opinion. Do you guys see the political stuff that's going on here with Jesus? Everybody's got an opinion. All these types of things are going on. But what's the common theme? Total rejection of Jesus Christ. Your lives are complicated. You got a lot going on, a lot of people that you're ministering to this week. The most important conversations you're going to have in your life are concerning this man. And whether or not the people you're talking to or whether you believe that he is the Son of God, he is eternal life. And not only that, what it means to have life in him as Christians. They sought to arrest him. Verse 31, let's close here. It says, yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, he will, will he do more sign than these things they've done? Another opinion. Like, the scriptures are totally filled with these things. The blind are seeing, the deaf are being given hearing. There's bread being miraculously made, people are being raised from the dead. I mean, like, who else is this gonna be? The miracles were to point as the proof that Jesus was the Messiah. And you can read about those in, like, Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35 and all that. Remember when John the Baptist was facing execution? He got a, said, hey, uh, this isn't how I planned it was gonna go out. He sends two disciples. They go to find Jesus and what happens? They, they said, ask him if, if he's the one or do we look for someone else? And Jesus replies there and in, 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 uh, he says in that hour he healed many people and diseases and plagues and evil spirits. This is back in Luke 7, I think. And he says, he says to them, and he answered them. He says, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. That the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So the miracles were being performed, and that led people to believe. And I'm just gonna read this so we can get, go to the next part. Uh, so let's just read verse 30, 32. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priests the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Verse 33, and Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I come, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you're gonna seek me and not find me and where I am, you cannot come? This makes me think of Hebrews in closing 12, 15 through 17. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he even sought it with tears." Jesus is saying, there's gonna come a day when all of you guys wanna find me, but you're not gonna be able to. 
because you've rejected me now. Separated from God for eternity in the lake of fire. How terrible and, and horrible that is. And this is the reality. Jesus does not mix words. And that is where what we face, church, this is, this is not playtime and entertainment and all that type of stuff. This is the worship of God and living it out and proclaiming the gospel because it's all coming to this point. And either you're on the sidelines or you're in. Amen? You're either a proclaimer, you're, you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ, or you're not. And God will separate the sheep from the goats on that day, but may we be those who are holy and set apart in his and let his word burn within our hearts and, and let his spirit empower us to do those good works that he prepared for us before the foundations of the earth because there's a fiery judgment awaiting the rest who do not know him and we don't want that to happen. And we are the ones God sent. And this is why I love verse 37, which is where we'll pick up next week. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Just this broad cry, because there are thirsty people everywhere. And Jesus stands in the midst of the crowds and says, come to me. That rock that was smote, that was hit, and water came pouring out, Jesus Christ, life in the wilderness, eternal life in the place of our barren death. He says, come to me. And that's the cry for anyone in here today and those that you will run into this week. Come to Jesus and let his life flow into yours. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this time and, and uh, may we have a correct understanding of you, not so we can get our theological points but may we know you. May we know your heart. And may your law be written on our heart. Not that we keep it externally only, Lord, but that we live in righteousness. That we would not neglect the weightier matters, Father, of mercy and justice and faithfulness. So Lord, cleanse us once again to follow you and uh, we just want to thank you for the hope you've given us. And we want to thank you for your Holy Spirit who's been given to us as a down payment who empowers us to now walk by the Spirit. And so Lord, may we be that church this week who just depends fully on your life and walks according to your Spirit and therefore fulfills the law of love. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, Father. Amen.